that was one of the major focuses of our paper was, you know, having these SMRs with the proof of work digital asset mining in the remote location specifically because of their modular ability and all the different benefits that could be used with that opportunity. The integration of them really creates that new monetization opportunity with that surplus energy. Okay, welcome to another episode of Young Professionals in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman here in Denver, Colorado, and I'm joined by a, a new co-host today. We've got uh, Sean McGee with us today. How you doing, Sean? Doing good. How are you? Awesome. Sean's actually been editing all of our episodes and been the background editor. If you listen to our episode with Scott Tinker, then he came on and had an awesome late night DJ voice, which is super fun. Uh, but yeah, this will be the first time... Uh, Acting as co-host, so we've got we've got an awesome group with us today up in Canada in Ontario. So I'm going to go ahead and let uh, let Sean introduce him. Yep, today we'll be talking with a group of green energy miners. We have Dennis Elliott, Zach Woods, Ryan McLeod, and Heidi McLeod. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Give us some background. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Sean. Uh, so my name is uh, Dennis Elliott. Um, I'm kind of here today with uh, two different hats on. Uh, one as the local chapter lead for um, the Chalk River North American Young Generation in Nuclear chapter. A little bit of a mouthful, but uh, still awesome organization. Um, and uh, also here as uh, CNL's commercial lead for the Advanced Reactors Directorate. Uh, and basically what that means is uh, I am the sort of point of contact for any uh, small modular reactor vendors or advanced reactors vendors or other members of the nuclear industry that are interested in working with Canadian nuclear laboratories. Uh, I'm also sort of the lead on a CNL's uh, commercial strategy uh, related to small modular reactor development and deployment, uh, and I administer the Canadian Nuclear Research Initiative. My A little bit of background on myself, I'm an undergraduate from Trent University, uh, and I got my master's from the University of Waterloo up in Canada, and yeah, I, I was a uh, Excited to sort of join this uh, clean energy miners team, which was uh, which was brought up by some of our other members, and I'll uh, pass it over to uh, I guess Heidi to introduce herself next. Thanks. Hi, my name is Heidi McLeod, and I'm also a member of Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. And the current position that I have there is as a material planner and inventory control officer, and I help with the inventory both at the Chalk River site as well as the Port Hope sites here in Ontario. So I've been with the nuclear industry for about six years now. I had the opportunity to work in the NRU for two years while it was operating and then move throughout the company as an administrative assistant into the role I now currently hold. I used to be very skeptical of nuclear when I first came in, um, thinking, oh my gosh, it's kind of scary. And through learning and knowledge and growing throughout the company, I'm now one of its biggest supporters. So thank you. Hi, I'm Ryan McLeod. I'm a laboratory technologist here at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. So I basically just keep a laboratory running that operates several mass spectrometers that's related to reactor safety and research. But that role has nothing to do really whatsoever with this idea that I conceived of because about January, I started to take Bitcoin seriously and pay attention and learn about the proof of work consensus protocol that underlies the whole network. And then when I started to understand the concept of Bitcoin mining and the energy demands that it needs, 
uh, a conversation between Heidi and I where we were just discussing an eccentric billionaire complaining about Bitcoin's energy usage. She just offhandedly threw out the remark of just why don't we start mining Bitcoin with the small modular reactors that we intend to build? I thought that idea was phenomenal and I started just looking into the space deeper and researching all the ways that that could possibly come about being. I had made contact with Zach, I think sometime around May, and we were already discussing the idea. And then this, uh, the North American Young Generation in Nuclear proposed this competition called Innovation for Nuclear, which is to come up with radical new solutions. And I figured that this was a brilliant way to help reduce the economic liabilities of not having customers to sell electricity to when the reactors are built and commissioned. And yeah, so I'll pass it on to Zach now. Hey everyone, so my name is Zach. I'm actually the only one in the group who's not in the nuclear industry. I'm a mechanical engineer in training. Uh, I do consulting work uh, designing plumbing and HVAC systems, but I went to school at the University of Western Ontario uh, took a few nuclear engineering courses, but by no means am a nuclear engineer. But that's where I got introduced to the idea of small modular reactors. And it was very clear to see how useful they were, especially in Canada, where we have such a, a spread out population and isolated clusters. And so I've always liked the idea, but never really got into the industry or anything. And then uh, very similar to Ryan, uh, was a fan of Bitcoin uh, from a few years ago and just deep in the lockdown kind of got struck with the idea of, oh, well, if you needed to balance the grid uh, with your variable load, you could always just turn off and on these computers to match and it would basically work together. So you could turn a nuclear plant into basically the same function as a natural gas plant where it could just easily load chase. So then just trying to basically give that idea to someone to do something with it, um, because it was very obviously it wasn't patentable. And uh, eventually uh, discussed with a, a guy named Greg Foss, who's uh, a bond guy in Bitcoin. And Greg got Ryan and us talking. And yeah, then, like Ryan said, we found this competition and thought, well, uh, it's worth a shot. It's a it's a report and some presentations. And then, yeah, we found ourselves uh, winning the North American chapter, which was a nice little surprise for us. That's fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for the intro, everyone. Heidi, you've got uh, yeah, six years in the nuclear space. That's uh, that's far more than me. So you don't think you're a true novice, right? So awesome story. Well, yeah, let's let's try and dive into it a little bit more. So how how did uh, innovation for nuclear come about? What like what was the contest like? How how did it get started? Help help educate our audience a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure thing. So the Innovation for Nuclear competition, it's sort of an interesting thing because it's a global competition, but it starts off being organized by uh, sort of regional organizations. So the North American version was put on by the uh, Nuclear Allies, which is a collection of organizations that includes the North American Young Generation for Nuclear, um, as well as Women in Nuclear and, and a number of other um advocacy type organizations. And so, you know, we, we heard about it through the North American Young Generation of Nuclear, naturally, since, you know, 
I, I happen to lead one of those chapters, so obviously <laughs> I'm aware of the things that they're doing from time to time. But the competition itself essentially had a number of stages. The first one uh, took place this summer, this past summer, so the summer of 2021. And that was to essentially come up with an idea that could enable nuclear technology to address uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So the United Nations has published 19 different sustainable development goals, um, and they're all sort of very noble pursuits that would en enrich the lives of developing nations and of um, underprivileged uh, people. Um, and, you know, obviously it's important uh, as an industry to kind of tell our story about how nuclear could contribute uh, to this sort of worldwide effort to lift people out of poverty and to improve the livelihoods of, of those less fortunate. And so this seemed like a really, really excellent fit uh, for that uh, because actually, sorry, I'm not going to get into that yet. <laughs> I'm just talking about the competition for now. Um, anyway, so the first stage was essentially to prepare a five page summary of our idea, how it would address those UN sustainable development goals and a sort of three minute video essay uh, again, so describing the idea. We uh, believe there were nine sort of teams from across North America that competed in this, uh, and we made it into the finals, which was just us and one other group. And then in the finals, it was essentially an expansion upon the previous thing, uh, where it was a 10-page report and a live presentation in front of a panel of uh, nuclear industry experts who then made the, the selection of the final winning team to go on to compete in the global finals. Uh, which are to take place in Sochi, Russia in May of 2022. So we're uh, ramping up to that. We have yet to receive very many details about what the actual competition will entail there, but I suspect it will be very similar. You know, we, we go there, we present our idea. But uh, obviously the best part is we get an all-expenses uh, paid trip to Sochi, Russia to participate in the International Youth Nuclear Conference. So that's just uh, that's just awesome in and of itself. So how much of the 10-page paper was about the nuclear aspects and how much was about the crypto aspects? Because I guess, I guess I could say I'm a crypto skeptic or I'm uninformed, but I just don't see how, you know, mining Bitcoin can lead to satisfying sustainability goals. Really any proof of work digital asset, but Bitcoin just happens to be the biggest and well, most well-known. But it's the one of the biggest advantages it has over a lot of other technologies that could be paired with nuclear power utilities is the idea of using it as a controllable load response. Because um, controllable load responses, like there's 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 a defined list of characteristics that that uh, make the an ideal load response. So like just to list a few, it, it can have a rapid response to real time grid fluctuations. Uh, can easily be co-located at or near generation sources. It can be highly interruptible in a way that doesn't cause harm to people, environments, or equipment. It has the ability to either increase or decrease demand up to the most extreme demand events. And it also has a small physical footprint for its, its footprint and storage for any uh, raw materials or products that are made. So Bitcoin mining fits the criteria for every one of those almost perfectly. The, the next closest controllable load response that technology that I first can see available is the production of hydrogen fuels. But the one major, one 
difference that it has is it has storage and transportation requirements. So that's where I see the Bitcoin mining have an advantage over that one because you can pack you can pack these computers into shipping containers and transport them to any generation source anywhere. And it'll essentially create like a, a, a seed type scenario where it will it creates an, an environment where we can build more generation capacity than we otherwise would. Because just for an example, like if you want to build 20 megawatts of capacity for a community that's only going to be using, say, 15 megawatts, you only have that five megawatts for the community to grow into. But say we take 40 megawatts and then we have the community can build into 40 megawatts. Well, in the meantime, until that community builds up to that full capacity, we can fill that entire gap with the proof of work mining infrastructure. And then as the community grows, we can redeploy the mining infrastructure to other projects or you can increase the total energy generation. It really depends on what suits the local community best. And it'll it'll allow communities to develop it in a more sustainable path because they don't get put in a situation where they have to rush as quickly as possible to fill in that that gap in energy generation and energy demand that they could potentially run into. Yeah, and I like how you phrase the the proof of work, Ryan. Right in in cryptocurrency or mining, I mean the the coin, so to speak, or quote unquote, is uh, a demonstration or a record that some energy or effort was used to to do a task. Right in the case of blockchain, right, the task is keeping contributing to a an immutable ledger. Right. Yeah, so you can think of work in the physical realm as work over distance, uh, right? That's what the formula is. In the digital realm, it's math over time. So it's how much uh, mathematical output you can do. Uh, that scales with how many computers you can do. So the more computers you have, the more energy you use. So it's a very uh, easy way to divvy out the rewards based on the work you put in, and there's no way to cheat that system. And just to circle back to uh, what Ryan was saying and how uh, how these technologies actually address the UN goals, our, our report laid out that it's, it's the SMRs that go out and provide the cheap, clean energy. That's where you get the clean water from. And so the SMRs are really the, the technology that's addressing these goals. And what Bitcoin mining does is help make that an economic venture because like, we know SMR technology can do all these things, but it won't get done unless there's a profit incentive. So what Bitcoin mining does so well is it monetizes energy that just can't be uh, transmitted to the grid. So you think of uh, different ways that monetize energy. You could produce aluminum. Like Ryan said, you could make hydrogen. You could do all these things, but you need a transportation network, either through pipelines or barges or any of these other things. Whereas Bitcoin mining, you just need a internet connection, which could be done through, you know, a Starlink connection. So you don't need to put in the infrastructure on the peripherals, you can just focus on your behind the fence SMR construction and then making sure you have the computing power 
to use that energy that won't be used by the community. That's great. Thanks for that overview, Zach. Um, and your guys' competition focused just on uses of nuclear, right? I mean, the, you identified Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin generation. Certainly, the the energy can come from other sources, but you guys were limited to, hey, how, what? How else can SMRs be deployed? Right. Yes, um, but uh, there are lots of other use cases of this uh, at point source Bitcoin mining for energy monetization. Uh, a big trend has been flare gas. Uh, so gas wells in Alberta and in the States would have to flare off this methane. And before it was just wasted energy. And now they have uh, these shipping containers, like Brian said, they go out. They hook it up and they're producing energy and actually we're getting a yield back on it. They're getting like 30 to 40 cents per kilowatt hour. Yeah, super cool. Okay, so I'm, I'm curious about your guys' uh, team, right? How, how did you guys each find each other and, and come together to, to put together this idea and competition? So I can answer that one. Uh, so essentially what happened was, uh, as Brian had mentioned earlier, him and I had had a conversation early last year in the spring and, uh, we had started kind of talking about it, thinking that was, you know, had the potential to be a really amazing idea. In all honesty, I was just kind of, I had thrown out the idea and went, okay, back to what I do and, uh, didn't really think any more of it, but Ryan really took it and ran with it. And then when this competition came up, he was really excited and he's like, this is the opportunity that we can, you know, show this. So him and I, um, we've been together for about 16 years. So that's how we end up knowing each other. And then from <laughs> <Right>. there, <laughs> You're yeah. Yeah. that's right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that's how we knew each other and, uh, took this idea. And then Brian had been, uh, you know, talking with Zach, uh, again, kind of early in the spring. And when this, again, when this competition came around, they said, yep, let's do this. And then through discussions, we thought, you know, it would be really good if we had someone who was more involved with the small modular reactor program. And it was really great that we actually work for a company who has such an individual. So through the different channels, uh, Ryan was put in touch with Dennis and uh, Dennis was happy enough to accept being a part of the team. And the rest is ancient history from there. That's awesome. Ryan, how did you know Zach? Were you guys just like drinking buddies or? No, we met through Greg Foss, who's he's a legacy financial industry type of guy who has gone really deep down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I was just randomly contacting people that I was listening to on different podcasts that, and just like, hey, I have this idea. What, what, what do you think about it? And he thought that it was a brilliant idea. And he had already been uh, talking with Zach about it. So he put the two of us together and. Then Zach and I have just been talking back and forth and discussing the idea. And then ultimately the competition came up and we thought it was a brilliant opportunity to showcase it and package it in just the right way. And we decided it made sense to wrap it around the existing framework of Canada's SMR action plan. Just see what happens from there. Yeah, I love to hit on points or highlight how how people meet right it's the, the networking and the connections and uh, it's, it's always an interesting story and then you guys identified a hole in your team and uh, tried to seek out and search for someone that might be able to fill that and found dennis so that's that's super super awesome so why why smrs was it was the competition just specific to smrs 
uh, or I mean, this this application could be utilized for the the larger generation plants also, right? It certainly could, and uh, I'm going to use that question as a method to hopefully uh, share with Sean a little bit because uh, I I too, well, I guess I could you could say I'm the group's. Uh, Bitcoin ignoramus. I, I don't really know much about Bitcoin. Uh, I'm just an SMR guy, and I uh, I came at this project from the from a kind of different perspective. Um, regardless of your stance on the technology itself, and Zach and Ryan can can jump all over me and tell me why Bitcoin is is awesome. Um, the way I view it is currently, anyways, it is the most profitable way um, to spend your excess kilowatts, um, and Touching on the difference between a small modular reactor and a remote community versus uh, versus a traditional on-grid power plant, uh, the most important difference, and this is something that Zach was was kind of hinting at, is that um, you don't necessarily have that level of demand that you do for a baseload generating plant. Uh, as Sean almost certainly knows, nuclear plants really like to run at 100% power as often as they can. Uh, running at less than 100% power can do all sorts of unfortunate things to your plant chemistry. And uh, in general, of course, if you're not operating at 100%, you're wasting money. Uh, and in a remote community, your power demand is going to fluctuate completely depending on the time of day, uh, depending on what other sort of uh, energy is hooked up to the grid. Uh, and you just don't have that same sort of base load level requirement where you have, where you could have a situation where there'd be sort of load following from a, a high temp or from a gas plant or something like that to, to compensate for it. So instead, if you can sort of um, create artificial demand by installing something like a Bitcoin operation, then you can install a reactor design that let's say is 10 megawatts electric. The community only requires four megawatts electric. Uh, and you sort of backfill that demand with six megawatts of uh, worth of Bitcoin mining operation, then the SMR developer and the operators have a guaranteed source of income for those off-peak hours. Uh, it also provides you with an opportunity to then essentially um, adjust your Bitcoin mining operation in accordance with whatever industrial processes you decide to develop in that community. So let's say they decide to set up some sort of smelting operation or something like that, which has very high power demand all through the working hours, and then at night it's shut off. And then you've got a situation where you're using all of your all of your generating capacity all day, every day, um, for you know a very important new business for a, a uh, remote community. And then at night uh, you switch that power over to producing Bitcoin, and you're still getting some dollars, you know, maybe less per kilowatt hour than you would from. Um, from your industrial operation, but you're not wasting the energy. Yeah, and even not considering the SMRs, but like you said, mentioning how it can be applied to the existing nuclear fleets and that's already distributed through Canada and the rest of the world. It's like right now in Ontario, we sell a substantial amount. Well, actually, we don't sell. We pay other jurisdictions to take surplus generation from our reactor fleet. And like that is a major economic liability, not only to the, the reactor utilities, but also to the, the province because they, they are play a big part in operating and overseeing these reactors. And then taking it even outside of nuclear, like just Ontario 
curtails. I think the last report that I read from the engineering report was somewhere in the order of 20 to 25 terawatt hours per year is just curtailed or or pays another jurisdiction to take it. So even if that was able to be sold for four cents a kilowatt hour to to just Bitcoin miners, that's potential of a billion dollars that's on the table for utilities to recapture and then redeploy into building more infrastructure and just continue growth and development with these these projects to get more energy infrastructure to energy impoverished locations, particularly the remote northern communities. And if I can just jump in with the remote communities, that was one of the major focuses of our paper was, you know, having these SMRs with the proof of work digital asset mining in the remote location specifically because of their modular ability. And uh, as laid out in the Canada's SMR action plan, all the different um, benefits that could be used with that opportunity. So essentially by acting as a controllable load response, like the guy said, our utility operators will have a secondary revenue stream that didn't exist before. And this will translate into energy price savings, not only for the companies and the utilities, but the individuals who pay for that, which will then give more capital to save for people like you and I to put into what is meaningful to us. And that was one of the big things, too, in addressing the UN goals with this paper is looking not only at, you know, clean and affordable energy, but all the other things that come off of that in that ripple effect. So, uh, you know, this can help in reducing hunger by having these small modular reactors with that Bitcoin um, ability to fund them. We can have greenhouses in any remote location, which has a big effect on that. You can have uh, these can power and finance the water treatment and desalinization facilities. You know, we can look at reducing poverty by providing that um, that abundant low emission energy. So just a lot of different things as well that um when you first scratch the surface, it doesn't really look like this can have, you know, that much of a uh, an effect on the different things we do and the lives we lead and the energy that it um, that it requires. But it th- through scratching that surface, we actually found that, yeah, this actually touches on a lot of things. So um, the integration of them really creates that new monetization opportunity with that surplus energy. Thank you. That's awesome. That was your music to my ears, Heidi. That I, I love all those things, right? Clean water for people, cheaper food. It's yeah. all derived from, from energy. Right? So for me, that was really my side of this kind of project was the more humanitarian side. You know, how can we make life better for everybody? And then I have this great team member who knows how to actually do it. Yeah, love it. So typically, the one of the hardest parts about building a nuclear plant is the upfront cost. And it sounds like... You know, you guys are talking about putting these plants in impoverished, you know, up and coming parts of the world. So where do, where does that startup money come from? I guess obviously the SMRs will be cheaper than a, you know, thousand megawatt plant, but there's still got to be some funding there, right? Yeah. So that's a, that's an excellent question, Sean. And, uh, you know, there's a, a number of answers and it was also part of the impetus uh, for this idea in the first place because um, as you rightly pointed out, upfront capital costs, even with these micro reactors uh, that that are targeting remote uh, deployments, are still you know far and away the most substantial cost, especially when you factor in the time value of money. Right, if you've got to put up all that money at the front end of the project and you're paying interest on that over time, uh, it, it really adds up. So uh, the financing right now comes uh, from a number of places, and you know. 
none have been built yet, <laughs> right? So uh, we're talking about financing for, for organizations that are still maturing their technologies and working on getting licensed and things like this. So uh, it's not like there has been a fully financed deployment of an SMR in a remote community yet. But anyways, as it stands, uh, there's a lot of private capital um, in a lot of these organizations because, of course, you know, with global warming being one of the biggest challenges our generation is facing, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, philanthrop- philanthropic type investors that want to put their money into clean tech companies and are rightly identifying SMRs as a potential uh, potential solution to the problem. Uh, there's also um, around the world a number of different uh, sort of government-backed funding programs that are help advancing these technologies. Here in Canada, there's been uh, some strategic innovation. Or ooh, I better get that one right. Some strategic innovation funding uh, from the federal uh, government uh, for a number of organizations. Uh, in the UK, they held an SMR competition, which was worth several hundreds of millions of pounds. Uh, and the USDOE, I think, has already put. Uh, or promised over a billion dollars to various uh, small modular reactor developers to help advance their technologies. Uh, but ultimately, you know, none of these things are going to be successful just through government funding. There needs to be a real business case at the end. Um, at the end of all this, uh, they need to be self-sustaining, and that is made significantly more likely through something like this combination of digital asset mining and uh, and small modular reactors because you really need to be generating revenue as much as possible and as early as possible when you turn that reactor on. Uh, and so even before you have, while the community is growing into the power supply that it now has and while it's growing in, uh, it's growing its demand, um, you fill that gap with uh, digital asset mining and you're generating revenue much earlier on in uh, in the process than you necessarily would be in other situations. Uh, and actually, the paper has a, a, a lovely little chart with a sort of a hypothetical example of, you know, here's your revenue stream uh, with uh, digital asset mining incorporated and here's where it is without it and, you know, where the break even point is uh, on that sort of thing. So the other reason that small modular reactor developers or micro reactor developers are targeting remote communities is because it actually is where um, they can they are most likely to be cost competitive in terms of price per kilowatt hour. Uh, large reactors obviously have the benefit of economies of scale, and you need to make up for that somehow. But um, in places that are very remote, uh, for example, in northern Canada, you're actually competing with diesel being, in some cases, flown in by plane. So as you can imagine, uh, flying diesel in by plane and then running a generator with it is actually pretty darn expensive. Uh, a good example is Iqaluit, um, which is the, the capital of Nunavut, which is one of our northern territories. This is the capital, right? This is like the main population hub. Even there, um, energy costs about 38 cents per kilowatt hour. And if you were to compare that with uh, Ontario, um, our peak energy cost is 17 cents per, per kilowatt hour. So you're not competing with the same sort of uh, price points as you would be for an on-grid technology. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Dennis, right? And that's... That's the same target market that like the Oklo guys are trying to trying to identify, right? They're a s- small micro reactor and they want to try and help solve that problem. I, I've done some analysis myself, and it's uh, yeah, energy is expensive in remote parts of the world. Um, you know, it might be 
$17 to $30 a megawatt in many metropolitan hubs where you're adjacent to existing plants. Right? I think of some numbers I've seen is like $20 a megawatt that nuclear power plants might be once they're, once the capital's paid back, not just the OPEX cost then. Um, but in those remote communities, it might be $200 a megawatt, right? To, to be able to purchase and install. And so, yeah, having a secondary source of revenue that can also provide benefit and service to the world like Bitcoin mining. Awesome. So have you guys thought about potential customers with your with your paper or the people that might commercialize this? I know you mentioned there might be some private capital behind it. Um, you know, obviously, it sounds like this is a recommendation for implementation of the technology, but um, any any real world people that might be a good use case other than, I guess, remote communities also. And then it thinking about timeline to deployment what's what's a realistic uh guess for how long it might take to to deploy some of this so i'll jump in quickly and then uh dennis if you want to follow with more on the smrs um so for that to my knowledge i think we're about five years away from uh, putting down our first SMR and building it. Now, the thing is, is that with these, you know, there's a lot of regulations and for good reason. Um, so we have to follow those different laws and whatnot. So they have to do with environmental regulations. So it's really important that no matter where these are going, that those environmental assessments are done so that not only are we putting them where they'll, um, you know, for human presence to be beneficial, but also for the environment itself. So all the numbers that we can give you on when we'd like them to deploy, is all, you know, contingent upon having those kinds of things uh, in place first. So with that, I'll send it over to Dennis with a little bit more on uh, the deployment of that in itself. So um, in terms of deployment timelines, uh, other than the it depends answer, there's a few examples that we can point to. One is, of course, the small modular reactor demonstration project going on at Shock River. Um, we have a uh, target date for the deployment of that demonstration plant of 2026. Um, and that is um, for a high temperature gas micromodular reactor uh, developed by Ultra Safe Nuclear Corporation and operated by Global First Power. So that reactor is a 15 megawatt thermal reactor um, and it involves uh, a number of advanced technologies, including um, sort of a triso based fuel compact. Um, it's a high temperature gas reactor. And of course, it's, you know, we've got all those modular features, um, of intending to be sort of shippable by, uh, by land or by air and, and, and flown into these places and assembled on site and then, and then brought into operation. Uh, so a technology like that, you know, you wouldn't probably see commercial deployment until the 2030s. And I think that's probably a pretty safe bet for most of these. Um, on the Bitcoin mining side of things, obviously that already exists. <laughs> so the limiting factor is really going to be how quickly uh, these different technology developers can license uh, their designs uh, through either the CNSC or the NRC in the United States. Uh, and then and then also, of course, it's going to be contingent on uh, on finding customers and communities that are actually willing to uh, host these. Uh, and that's going to be a very, very important Outstanding question in the next five years is, is, is doing that sort of groundwork and getting in touch with these communities and actually sort of making sure that it's something that they want. Uh, that conversation certainly needs to happen in a lot of places, and I don't think it necessarily has yet. Um, 
another sort of end user customer for this idea uh, could certainly be on, on the industry side of things, something like a remote mining operation. Um, the exact same principles apply, right? Uh, if you're setting up a mine in your first year or two of operation, you might slowly be ramping up your energy demand. So if you want to install, if you're an SMR vendor and you want to sell a reactor to a mining company, then you're really going to need to um, find a way to use all that excess power in those first couple of years or else, you know, the mining company is going to say, well, there's just no way this competes with just having diesel generators. Uh, so that sort of idea could really help bolster um, more industrial activity in uh, in remote areas as well. So, Ryan, um, is there a race against the clock here? I told you I'm still learning, but I understand there's just a finite number of Bitcoin that are going to be mined, right? Is there any estimate of how long that would actually take? Well, that takes into account the uh, the issuance rate of Bitcoin. So the proof-of-work consensus protocol is designed to issue a block reward, which currently sits at 6.25 Bitcoin per block. And the blocks, the, the network is designed so that each block takes about 10 minutes to to solve. And then the, it gets added to the blockchain and then the network just moves on to the next block. And a block is just a bunch of batched transactions that were put together. And the, the miners are incentivized to prioritize transactions that have higher fees associated with them so that those those are so the higher fees that you put along with your transaction, the more enticing it is for the Bitcoin miner to include it in the block, and then they will process your transaction at higher priority. So you can, in theory, you can um, submit a transaction for zero fee, and you just have to wait until the empty block. But the, uh, like to answer your question is every four years, so every 200 and 10,000 blocks roughly, the amount of subsidy within the block gets cut in half. So the next cycle will be down to 3.125 Bitcoin per block. And that will continue to diminish over time until it's, I think, 2140 will be the year that it completely diminishes down to zero and that miners will only be incentivized by the transaction fees and there will be no more block subsidy to for them to chase. But the, the assumption is, is that as more infrastructure and more mining and more hash rate is contributed to the network that creates a better security for the whole network protocol as a whole. And then that makes the, the assets, the Bitcoin more valuable to use because it's basically tied into the cost of energy used to produce it. And right now the, the gap between the cost to produce a Bitcoin and the, the value of what a Bitcoin is in the market is, is a huge gap. Somewhere like if you're mining with, I think, six cents per kilowatt electricity, you're producing a Bitcoin for about $20,000, $25,000, which is substantially less than what the market value of Bitcoin is right now. So as more infrastructure comes online and it becomes more efficient, eventually it will reach a point where the cost of electricity matches perfectly the the um, value of Bitcoin on the open market. And what that's also going to do with it is because Bitcoin miners are constantly chasing the lowest marginal cost of energy, they're going to force energy utilities to compete to create 
more robust and efficient electricity infrastructure to lower those costs. And it's just, it's going to chase everything down as close to like the zero marginal cost of electricity as they possibly can. Like that, it's, it could take a while to get there, but that is the trajectory that this network is headed on in, with its relationship to electricity infrastructure. And it is a very high probability that as more nation states continue to pay attention to this, they're going to leverage every bit of electrical infrastructure that they have available to them to compete in this network. Like we're already starting to see it in some regards with like El Salvador's using volcanic geothermal geothermal energy to mine Bitcoin. And I think Ukraine is proposing to build a substantial amount of Bitcoin mining capacity attached to their nuclear reactor fleet. Uh, I think another interesting one was Laos has, I think, six gigawatts worth of uh, hydroelectric capacity that they want to use for Bitcoin mining that doesn't get used. So there's... A lot of interesting action happening in this space where all kinds of countries and institutions are finding clever ways to leverage their electrical infrastructure to be a part of this competition. Like one, one of the more interesting ones that I that uh, was announced recently is how the, the Navajo Nation is actually using Bitcoin mining to transition from using primarily coal to building uh, lots of solar infrastructure. And they've set up their first mine at an underused um, substation that was just being wasted. So they set up a mine and they're employing local residents there and they're, and it's directly benefiting the local community. And I would like to see that replicated elsewhere in Canada and, and any other small community that has stranded energy resources that are difficult to participate in the like standard grids. That's awesome, Ryan. I, I had never heard the kind of equalization of um, reward of work or the, the for a blockchain technology to be tied to the price of energy, but it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to kind of normalize cost of energy um, across large areas. So, yeah, I, perspective. And I I fully agree with Ryan, and I personally think within this decade has a, about a 80% probability, but within two decades, I believe it's certain that your energy bill will be priced in Bitcoin because that's the opportunity cost that the utility providers uh, will be witnessing. So it will just naturally really balance the grid on the uh, population side, as well as the energy investment going forward just overall will push us into producing more energy, hopefully better sources of energy, and then driving the overall cost of energy for the population down. But at the end of the day, it will be energy pegged to Bitcoin. And if I can just finish it off, just, you know, with the different talk of the different communities, it's going to take strong relationships between industry stakeholders and local communities, our indigenous peoples, Bitcoin miners, public officials, entrepreneurs, everybody. It's going to be essential in realizing this vision. That's awesome. Well, guys, I really appreciate the time. I I feel like that might be the best spot for us to for us to leave it. But the next step for you guys is to go to Russia, right? And win, win the global competition. That's right. It's time to storm the world. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, we wish you luck there, and uh, thanks so much for, for coming on the show with us. Thanks Thank so much you guys very much.
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us.